Section 8 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings from the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 4, The Supply of Kings. Stories of the type of beauty and the beast are not mere fictions, but rest on a real basis of belief and custom. Tales of the foregoing sort might be dismissed as fictions designed to amuse a leisure hour, were it not for their remarkable agreement with beliefs and customs which, as we have seen, still exist, or are known to have existed in former times. The agreement can hardly be accidental. We seem to be justified, therefore, in assuming that stories of the kind really rest on a basis of facts, however much of these facts may have been distorted or magnified in passing through the mind of the storyteller who is naturally more concerned to amuse than instruct her hearers similarly the legend of kings who were sacrificed after a reign of a single day has its analogy in actual custom even the legend of a line of kings of whom each reigned for a single day and was sacrificed at night for the good of the people will hardly seem incredible when we remember that to this day a kingdom is held on a similar tenure in West Africa. Though under water conditions, the throne stands vacant, and while it would be vain to rely on such stories for exact historical details, yet they may help us in a general way to understand the practical working of an institution which to civilised men seems at first sight to belong to the cloudland of fancy rather than to the sober reality of the workday world. Such stories dictate that the supply of kings may have been maintained by compelling men to accept the fatal sovereignty. Remark, for example, how in these stories the supply of kings is maintained. In the Indian tradition, all the men in the city are put on a list, and each of them, when his turn comes, is forced to reign for a day and to die the death. It is not left to his choice to decide whether he will accept the fatal sovereignty or not. In the high history of the Holy Grail, the mode of filling the vacant throne is different. A stranger, not a citizen, is seized and compelled to accept office. In the end, no doubt, the dwarf volunteers to be king, thus saving Lancelot's life. But the narrative plainly implies that if the substitute had not thus been found, Lancelot would have been obliged, whether he would or not, to wear the crown and to perish in the fire. Our conceptions of the primitive kingship are apt to be coloured and falsified by ideas borrowed from the very different monarchies of modern Europe. In thus representing the succession to a throne as compulsory, the stories may well preserve a reminiscence of a real custom. To us, indeed, who draw our ideas of kingship from the hereditary and highly privileged monarchies of civilised Europe, the notion of thrusting the crown upon reluctant strangers or common citizens of the lowest rank is apt to appear fantastic and absurd. But that is merely because we fail to realise how widely the modern type of kingship has diverged from the ancient pattern. In early times, the duties of sovereignty are more conspicuous than its privileges. At a certain stage of development, the chief or king is rather the minister or servant than the ruler of his people. The sacred functions which he is expected to discharge are deemed essential to the welfare and even the existence of the community, and at any cost, someone must be found to perform them. Yet the burdens and restrictions of all sorts incidental to the early kingship are such that not merely in popular tales, but in actual practice, compulsion has sometimes been found necessary to fill vacancies 
or elsewhere the lack of candidates has caused the office to fall into abeyance, or even to be abolished altogether. And where death stared the luckless monarch in the face at the end of a brief reign of a few months or days, we need not wonder that jails had to be swept and the dregs of society raked to find a king. In other races and other ages, Many men may have been willing to accept a kingdom on condition of being killed at the end of a short reign. Various cases have contributed to intensify the fear of death in modern Europe. Yet we should doubtless err if we suppose that under such high conditions men could never be found ready and even eager to accept the sovereignty. A variety of causes has led the modern nations of Western Europe to set on human life, their own life, and that of others a higher value than is put upon it by many other races. The result is a fear of death which is certainly not shared in the same degree of intensity by some peoples whom we, in our self-complacency, are accustomed to regard as our inferiors. Among the causes which thus tend to make us cowards may be numbered the spread of luxury and the doctrines of a gloomy theology, which, by proclaiming the eternal damnation and excruciating torments of the vast majority of mankind has added incalculably to the dread and horror of death. The growth of humaner sentiments, which seldom fails to effect a corresponding amelioration in the character even of the gods, has indeed led many Protestant divines of late years to temper the vigour of the divine justice with a large infusion of mercy by relegating the fires of hell to a decent obscurity or even extinguishing them altogether. But these lurid flames appear to blaze as fiercely as ever in the more conservative theology of the Catholic Church. Evidence of the comparative indifference to death displayed by other races It would be easy to accumulate evidence of the indifference or apathy exhibited in presence of death by races whom we commonly brand as lower. Absence of the fear of death in India and Amman a few examples must here suffice. Speaking of the natives of India, an English writer observes, We place the highest value on life, while they, being blessed with a comfortable fatalism, which assumes that each man's destiny is written on his forehead in invisible characters, and being, besides, untroubled with any doubts or thoughts as to the nature of their reception in the next world, take matters of life and death a great deal more unconcernedly, and compared with our ideas, they may be said to present an almost apathetic indifference on these subjects. To the same effect, another English writer remarks that the absence of that fear of death which is so powerful in the hearts of civilized men is a most remarkable trait in the Hindu character. Among the natives of Amman, according to a Catholic missionary, the subject of death has nothing alarming for anybody. In presence of a sick man, people will speak of his approaching end and of his funeral as readily as of anything else. Hence, we never need to take the least verbal precaution in warning the sick to prepare themselves to receive their last sacraments. Some time ago, I was summoned to a neophyte whose death, though certain, was still distant. On entering the house, I found a woman seated at his bedside, sewing the morning dresses of the family. Moreover, the carpenter was fitting together the boards of the coffin quite close to the door of the house so the dying man could observe the whole proceeding from his bed. The worthy man superintended personally all these details and gave directions for each of the operations. He even had for his pillow part of the morning costume which he already finished. I could tell you a host of anecdotes of the same sort. 
among these people it is a mark of filial piety to present a father or mother with a coffin the presentation is the occasion of a family festival to which all friends are invited pupils display their respect for their masters in the same fashion bishop masson whose letter i have just quoted was himself presented with a fine coffin by some of his converts as a new year gift and a token of their respect and affection they invited his attention particularly to the quality of the wood and the beauty of the workmanship absence of the fear of death among the american indians with regard to the north american indians a writer who knew them well has said that among them the idea of immortality is strongly dwelt upon is not spoken of as a supposition or a mere belief not fixed it is regarded as an actuality as something known and approved by the judgment of the nation during the whole period of my residence and travels in the indian country i never knew and never heard of an indian who did not believe in it and in the reappearance of the body in a future state however mistaken they are on the subject of accountabilities for acts done in the present life no small part of the entire mythology and the belief that sustains a man in his vicissitudes and wanderings here arises from the anticipation of ease and enjoyment in a future condition after the soul has left the body the resignation nay the alacrity with which an indian frequently lies down and surrenders life is to be ascribed to this personal belief he does not fear to go to a land which all his life long he has heard abounds in rewards without punishments another traveller who saw much of the south american indians asserts that they surpass the beasts in their insensibility to hardship and pain never complaining in sickness or even when they are being killed and exhibiting in their last moments an apathetic indifference untroubled by any misgiving as to the future apathy of savages under sentence of death wholesale butcheries of human beings were perpetuated till lately in the name of religion in the west african kingdom of dahomey as to the behaviour of the victims we are told that almost invariably those doomed to die exhibit the greatest coolness and unconcern the natural dread of death which the insect of self-preservation has implanted in every breast often leads persons who are liable to be seized for immolation to endeavour to escape but once they are seized and bound they resign themselves to their fate with the greatest apathy this is partly due to the less delicate nervous system of the negro but one reason and that of the least is that they have nothing to fear as has been said they have but to undergo a surgical operation and a chance of place of residence there is no uncertain future to be faced and above all there is an entire absence of that notion of a place of terrible punishment which makes so many europeans cowards when face to face with death one of the earliest european settlers on the coast of brazil was remarked on the difference exhibited by the indian prisoners who are about to be massacred by their enemies they conversed with the captives men young strong and handsome who is questioned whether they did not fear the death that was so near and so appalling they were part of laughter and mockery when he spoke of ransoming them from their foes they jeered at the cowardice of europeans the cons of india practised an extensive system of human sacrifice of which we shall hear more in the sequel the victims known as meraz were kept for years to be sacrificed and the manner of death was peculiarly horrible since they were hacked to pieces or slowly roasted alive and when these destined victims were rescued by the english officers who were engaged in putting down the custom they generally availed themselves of any opportunity to escape 
from their deliverers and return to their fate. In Uganda, there were formerly many sacrificial places where human victims used to be slaughtered or burned to death, sometimes in hundreds from motives of superstition. Those who have taken part in these executions bear witness. How seldom a victim, with a man or woman, raised his voice to protest or appeal against the treatment meted out to him. The victims went to death, so they thought, to save their country and race from some calamity, and they laid down their lives without a murmur or a struggle. Further, men of other races often sacrifice their lives voluntarily for reasons which seem to us wholly inadequate. But it is not merely that men of other races and other religions submit to inevitable death with an equanimity which modern Europeans in general cannot match. That we seek and find of a reasons which seem to us wholly inadequate. The motives which lead them to sacrifice their lives are very various. Among them, religious fanaticism has probably been one of the commonest. And in the preceding pages, we have met with many instances of voluntary deaths incurred under its powerful impulse. But more secular motives, such as loyalty, revenge, and excessive sensibility to the point of honour, have also driven multitudes to throw away their lives with a levy which may strike the average modern Englishman as bordering on insanity. It may be well to illustrate this comparative indifference to death by a few miscellaneous examples drawn from different races. Thus peoples have freely allowed themselves to be killed in order to accompany their dead ruler to the other world. Thus when the king of Benin died and was about to be lowered into the earth, his favourites and servants used to compete with each other for the privilege of being buried alive with his body in order that they might attend and minister to him in the other world. After the dispute was settled and the tomb had closed over the dead and the living, sentinels were set to watch it day and night. Next day the sepulchre would be opened and someone would call down to the entombed men to know what they were doing and whether any of them had gone to serve the king. The answer was commonly, no, not yet. The third day the same question would be put and a voice would reply that so-and-so had gone to join his majesty. The first to die was deemed happiest. In four or five days, when no answer came up to the question, and all was silent in the grave, the heir to the throne was informed, and he signalised his ascension by kindling a fire on the tomb, resting flesh at it, and distributing the meat to the people. The daughter of a Mabaya chief in South America, having been happily baptised at the very point of death, was accorded Christian burial in the church of the Jesuit missionary, who had rescued her like a brand from the burning. But an old heathen woman of the tribe took it sadly to heart that a chief's daughter should not be honoured with the usual human sacrifices. So drawing an Indian aside, she implored him to be so kind as to knock on the head that she might go and serve her young mistress in the land of souls. The savage obligingly complied with her request, and the whole horde begged the missionary that her body might be buried with that of the chief's daughter. The Jesuit sternly refused, informed them that the girl was now with the angels, and stood in need of no such attendant. As for the old woman, he observed grimly that she had gone to a very different place and would move in a very different circle of society. When Otho committed suicide after the Battle of Bedrechium, some of his soldiers slew themselves at his pyre, and their example was afterwards followed by many of their comrades in the armies which had marched with Otho to meet Vitellius. The motive was not fear of the conqueror, but purely loyalty and devotion to their emperor. In the East, persons sometimes commit suicide in order to avenge themselves on their enemies. 
in the east that indifference to human life which seems so strange to the western mind often takes a peculiar form a man will sometimes kill himself merely in order to be revenged on his foe believing that his ghost will haunt and torment the survivor or expecting that punishment of some sort will overtake the wretch who drove him to this extreme step among some peoples etiquette requires that if a man commits suicide for this purpose his enemy should at once follow his example law of retaliation in a robber caste of southern india to take a single example there is a caste of robbers in southern india among whom the law of retaliation prevails in all its rigour if a quarrel takes place and somebody tears out his own eye or kills himself his adversary must do the same either to himself or to one of his relations the women carry this barbarity still further for a slight affront put on them a sharp word said to them they will go and smash their head against the door of her who offended them and the latter is obliged immediately to do the same if a woman poisons herself by drinking the juice of a poisonous herb the other woman who drove her to this violent death must poison herself likewise else her house will be burned her cattle carried off and injuries of all kinds done to her until satisfaction is given they extend this cruelty even to their own children not long ago a few steps from the church in which i have the honour to write to you two of these barbarians having quarrelled one of them ran to his house took from it a child of about four years and crushed its head between two stones in the presence of his enemy the latter without exhibiting any emotion took his nine years old daughter and plunging a dagger into her breast said your child was only four years old mine was nine years old give me a victim to equal her certainly replied the other and seeing at as he sighed his eldest son who was ready to be married he stabbed him four or five times with his dagger and not content with shedding the blood of his two sons he killed his wife too in order to oblige his enemy to murder his wife in like manner lastly a little girl and a baby at the breast also had their throats cut so that a single day seven persons were sacrificed to the vengeance of two bloodthirsty men more cruel than the most ferocious brutes i have actually in my church a young man who sought refuge among us wounded by a spear thrust which his father inflicted on him in order to kill him and thus oblige his foe to slay his own son in like manner the barbarian had already stabbed two of his children on other occasions for the same purpose such atrocious examples will seem to you to partake more of fable than of truth but believe me that far from exaggerating i could produce many others not less tragical contempt of death exhibited in antiquity by the thracians and not the gauls the same contempt of death which many races have exhibited in modern times was displayed in antiquity by the hardy natives of europe before christianity had painted the world beyond the grave in colours at which even their bold spirits quarrelled thus for example at their banquets the rude thracians used to suspend a halter over a movable stone and cast lots among themselves the man on whom the lot fell mounted the stone with a scimitar in his hand and thrust his head into the noose a comrade then rolled the stone from under him and while he did so the other attempted to sever the rope with his scimitar if he succeeded he dropped to the ground and was saved if he failed he was hanged and his dying struggles were greeted with peals of laughter by his fellows who regarded the whole thing as a capital joke the greek traveller posidonius who visited gaul early in the first century before our era records that among the celts men were to be found who for a sum of money or a number of jars of wine which they distributed among their kinsmen or friends 
would allow themselves to be publicly slaughtered in a theatre. They lay down on their backs upon a shield, and a man came and cut their throats with a sword. In ancient Rome, there were men willing to be beheaded for the sum of five manae. A Greek author, Euphorion of Chalcis, who lived in the age when the eyes of all the world were turned on the great conflict in Rome and Carthage for the mastery of the Mediterranean, tells us that at Rome it was customary to advertise for men who would consent to be beheaded with an axe in consideration of receiving a sum of five minae, or about twenty pounds of our money, to be paid after their death to their heirs. Apparently there was no lack of applicants for this hard-earned bounty, for we are informed that several candidates would often compete for the privilege, each of them arguing that he had the best right to be cudgeled to death. Why were these men invited to be beheaded for twenty pounds apiece, and why, in response to the invitation, did they gratuitously, as it would seem, express their readiness to suffer a much more painful death than simple decapitation? The reasons are not stated by Euphorion in his brief extract quoted from his work by Athenaeus, the Greek writer who has also preserved for us the testimony of Poseidonius to the Gaelic recklessness of life, but the connection in which Athenaeus cites both these passages suggests that the intention of the Roman as of the Gallic practice was merely to minister to the brutal pleasure of the spectators, for he inserts his account of the custom in a dissertation on banquets, and he had just before described how hired ruffians fought and butchered each other at Roman dinner parties for the amusements of the tipsy guests. Or perhaps the men were wanted to be slaughtered at funerals, for we know that at Rome a custom formerly prevailed of sacrificing human beings at the tomb. The victims were commonly captives or slaves, but they may sometimes have been obtained by advertisement from among the class of needy freemen. Such wretches, in bidding against each other, may have pleaded as a reason for giving them the preference that they really deserved for their crimes to die a slow and painful death under the cudgel of the executioner. This explanation of the custom, which I owe to my friend, Mr. W. Wise, is perhaps the most probable but it is also possible, though the language of Euphorion does not lend itself so well to this interpretation, that a cudgeling preceded decapitation as part of the bargain. If that was so, it would seem that the men were wanted to die as substitutes for condemned criminals, for in old Rome capital punishment was regularly inflicted in this fashion. The malefactors being tied up to a post and skirted with rods before they were beheaded with an axe. There is nothing improbable in the view that persons could be hired to suffer the extreme penalty of the law instead of the real culprits. We shall see that a voluntary substitution of the same sort is reported on apparently good authority to be still occasionally practised in China. However, it is immaterial to our purpose whether these men perish to save others, to adorn a funeral, or merely to gratify the Roman lust for blood. The one thing that concerns us is that in the great age of Rome there were to be found Romans willing, nay eager, to barter their lives for a paltry sum of money, of which they were not even to have the enjoyment. No wonder that men made of that stuff founded a great empire, and spread the terror of the Roman arms from the Grampians to the tropics. Chinese Indifference to Death The comparative indifference with which the Chinese regard their lives is attested by the readiness with which they commit suicidal grounds, which often seem to the European extremely trifling. A still more striking proof of their apathy in this respect is furnished by the readiness 
with which in China a man can be induced to suffer death for a sum of money to be paid to his relatives. Thus, for example, one of the most wealthy of the Aboriginal tribes, called Shuri Kaimau, is remarkable for the practice of a singular and revolting religious ceremony. The people possess a large temple, in which is an idol in the form of a dog. They resort to this shrine on a certain day every year to worship. At this annual religious festival, it is, I believe, customary for the wealthy members of the tribe to entertain their poor brethren at a banquet given in honour of one who has agreed, for a sum of money paid to his family, to allow himself to be offered as a sacrifice on the altar of the dog idol. At the end of the banquet, the victim, having drunk wine freely, is put to death before the idol. This people believe that, were they to neglect this rite, they would be visited with pestilence, famine, or the sword. Further is said that in China, a man condemned to death can procure a substitute, who, for a small sum, will voluntarily consent to be executed in his stead. The money goes to the substitute's kinsfolk, and since, to increase the family's prosperity at the expense of personal suffering is regarded by the Chinese as an act of the highest virtue, there is reported to be, just as there used to be in ancient Rome, quite a competition among the candidates for death. Such substitution is even recognised by the Chinese authorities except in the case of certain grave names, as for instance, parricide. The local Mandarin is probably not averse to the arrangement, for he is said to make a pecuniary profit for the transaction, engaging a substitute for a less sum than he received from the condemned man and pocketing the difference. We must not judge of all men's love of life by our own. The foregoing evidence may suffice to convince us that we should commit a grievous error when we were to judge all men's love of life by our own, and assume that others cannot hold cheap what we count so dear. We shall never understand the long course of human history if we persist in measuring mankind in all ages and in all countries by the standard, perhaps excellent but certainly narrow, of the modern English middle class with their love of material comfort, and that passionate, absorbing, almost bloodthirsty clinging to life. That class which I may say, in the words of Matthew Arnold, that I am myself a feeble unit, Dallas possesses many estimable qualities, but among them can hardly be reckoned the rare and delicate gift of historical imagination. The power of entering into the thoughts and feelings of men of other ages and other countries, of conceiving that they may regulate their life by principles which do not square with ours, and may throw it away for objects which to us might seem ridiculously inadequate. Hence it is probable that in some races, and at some periods of history, it would be easy to find men willing to accept a kingdom on condition of being killed at the end of a short reign. To return, therefore, to the point from which we started, we may safely assume that in some races, and at some periods of history, though certainly not in the well-to-do classes of England today, it might be easy to find men who would be willing to accept a kingdom with the certainty of being put to death after a reign of a year or less. When men are ready, as they have been in Gaul, in Rome, and in China, to yield up their lives at once for a paltry sum which they are themselves to reap no benefit, would they not be willing to purchase at the same price a used tenure of a throne? Among people of that sort, the difficulty would probably be not so much to find a candidate for the crown as to decide between the conflicting claims of a multitude of competitors. In point of fact, we have heard 
of a shilik clamouring to be made king on condition of being killed at the end of a brief reign of a single day and we have read how in malabar a crowd scrambled for the bloody head which entitled the lucky man who caught it to be decapitated after five years of unlimited enjoyment and how at calicut many men used to rush cheerfully on death not for a kingship of a year or even of an hour but merely for the honour of displaying their valour in a fruitless attack on the king End of section 8